Lord, as we've just sung, we thank you and we praise you that we can find true rest in Jesus Christ. Lord, I sense today that what many of us need today is not a sermon of conviction, but a sermon of encouragement. And so I pray that that is what we will experience here together today. That whatever we're experiencing in our circumstances of life in which you have put us of late, Lord, please call us to you this afternoon and cause us to draw near and find rest in you. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. My name is James. If you don't know me, if you're new or visiting, we're just really glad you're with us today. And I want to start off just asking you, kind of a downer question to start off with, but what is the most dire situation you've been in? What's the most dire situation you've found yourself in? Physically, emotionally, spiritually? Have you ever felt completely defeated, abandoned, and hopeless? Katerina Grohn had always dreamed of hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. If you don't know what that is, it's a strenuous 2,700-mile hike. It's an endurance hike through the Sierra Nevadas and the Cascade Mountains, which means it starts from the border of Mexico and California and goes all the way up through the border of Washington and Canada, just straight through the mountain ranges. And here, Katerina found herself finally living that dream. But Katerina, who is from Germany, was actually a novice hiker. She had no experience even camping alone outdoors, and she didn't have the right gear, and perhaps her biggest mistake is she learned most of what she knew from watching YouTube videos. But after six months of hiking on what is supposed to be about a four-month hike, she's almost there. She's 90% of the way there, 300 miles away, and one day in the mountains of Washington, Katerina runs into an American named Nancy. Nancy is a local who uses part of the Pacific Crest Trail as a day hike just for exercise. But when Nancy runs into Katerina and finds out she's headed to Canada, she's immediately concerned for her because winter is almost here. In fact, Nancy is shocked at Katerina's lack of proper gear, snowshoes. She knows it's much too late to be venturing into that territory at the time. And for two hours, their paths coincide. They walk together, they talk, and Nancy tries to talk her out of completing her journey. But at the end of the day, Nancy returns home and Katerina continues on. And you can probably guess what happens. The very next day, the weather turns cold and wet. Katerina stops seeing any other hikers around on the journey. They've all quit. She is now alone on the trail. A few days later, snow sets in and the trail disappears underneath the whiteness. And every day that follows, Katerina makes less and less progress. She hikes fewer and fewer hours. She's cold and weak and exhausted. And ultimately, she finds herself at Fire Creek Pass, which is at an elevation of over 6,000 feet, and there's nowhere to pitch her tent in all of the snow. And then a blizzard hits. The temperature plummets. Visibility is nil. Katerina loses all hope. She knows that this is the end. She takes out her phone. She tries to call her brother in Germany. She knows no one in the States. She wants to talk to him to say goodbye but there's no cell signal. And so unable to contact anyone, she just uses the voice memo app to record a farewell message. And then she crawls into her soaking wet sleeping bag to wait for death. Have you ever felt completely abandoned and hopeless that all was lost? Turn with me to Psalm chapter 60. Psalm chapter 60. We are continuing in our study of 2 Samuel by looking at a psalm that corresponds to the events we've just read about last week in 2 Samuel chapter 8. If you remember, chapter 8 had recounted all of King David's military victories, right? We saw how David, or how through David, God delivered Israel from all of their enemies, including the Philistines, the Moabites, the Zobahites, the Syrians, the Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. God is clearly on David's side. But that's not the whole story, because when we get into Psalm 60, we find that this is a complementary picture of what's going on, but it's behind the scenes. And surprisingly, the untold story is actually a pretty bleak one, one where Israel seems to have been abandoned and forsaken by God. Look just at the header here, which gives us the context. It says, To the choir master, according to Shushan Eduth, a mictim of David for instruction, when he strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. So David is the author, and this is the occasion. The first two enemies here, with 
Aram in their names means the Arameans or the Syrians. These are the same armies in 2 Samuel chapter 8 when David defeated Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, so Aram Zobah, and also the Syrians of Damascus, who are probably the, the other one here. And then a third battle took place in chapter 8 at the Valley of Salt, where David struck down 18,000 of the Edomites. Now, the header here in chapter 60 says it was Joab, not David, but that's easily reconciled because Joab was the commander of David's army, so his wins are attributed to David. And also, although the psalm lists the body count at 12,000 rather than 18,000, it's most likely not a scribal error, but perhaps just that they're counting part of the larger victory, just a part of the larger battle, or maybe this might be the people Joab killed and the rest David or someone else did. We don't know, but whatever the case, Psalm 60 pretty clearly corresponds with 2 Samuel chapter 8. So let's see what it says from David's own perspective. Read the whole psalm, verses 1 through 12. O God, you have rejected us. You have broken our defenses. You have been angry. O restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. Selah. That your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbasin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. This is the word of God. Now, as we started reading, you probably have a question, because if you were here last week, you remember that God brought peace to Israel through King David, and twice Samuel had told us the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And yet this psalm starts out with abandonment and rejection. What's going on here? Apparently things weren't all hunky-dory, rainbows and butterflies. Apparently some very negative things were completely missing from the second Samuel account. Grief had preceded the glory. Darkness had come before the dawn. And so one thing we need to understand at the outset is the historical accounts of Samuel and the Chronicles and books like those, though they are accurate, are incomplete. And this is natural. It's not error in Scripture. But these are decades of history condensed into just a few pages. You can't tell the whole story. All right, 2 Samuel 8 also it wasn't chronological. It was a one-chapter summary of David's conquest during his entire reign. So we must remember also that Scripture exists and stands and is written to make a point. And the point of 2 Samuel chapter 8 was the final outcome, the ultimate reality that God's presence was with David, that his favor was upon him, that his blessing was upon his people of Israel through his chosen king. That was the point of chapter 8. But the point of Psalm 60 is something else entirely. And so it includes different details. Look at the header again. And though they aren't numbered with the verses, these words are still divinely inspired biblical text. And the psalm opens with some technical direction, which is common in the psalms. It says, to the choir master. Out of 150 psalms, 55 of them are to the choir master, which probably just indicates uh, that it's meant to be used in corporate worship. Next, it's according to Shushan Idus, which probably is just the name of a melody or a tune that this psalm would be sung to. And it means something about lilies, which is true of four psalms in total that are sung after the lilies. And then it's a miktam, which is a type of song. We don't really know the details what that meant. But six of the psalms are also miktams, that same type or style. And it is of David, who wrote 75 of the psalms. So all these musical descriptors, they would help Israel to know how to worship, how to use this song. But none of them are uncommon or were not, un or were not you know, they were all used elsewhere in the collection of songs. But there is one final detail. The final detail that sets apart Psalm 60 from all other 149 psalms, and it's this, that it is for instruction. 
Psalm 60 is the only psalm that is designated to be for instruction. The only one explicitly written to teach that there is something important in it to be taught and learned and remembered and recounted for generations. So when giving us a fuller picture of the history, not by just recounting the highs like 2 Samuel did, but also the lows that preceded them, Psalm 60 is meant to teach us something about God's relationship with his people. And so today we'll work our way through this psalm to receive its instruction, and we'll learn three things. First, all is never lost. Second, God will never change. And third, you are never alone. The first lesson of Psalm 60 is that for God's people, all is never lost. David opens by crying out to God from this apparent place of abandonment. And as we read it again, notice that he uses a series of verbs all in the second person, all you have. So you've done this, you've done that, you've done the other. He gives this laundry list of lament as he describes seven of God's actions. Oh God, you have rejected us. You have broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches for it totters. You have made your people to see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. Verse 1 starts with this feeling of God's rejection. It's though God had pushed them away turned his back on us. He feels silent. He feels distant as though he's no longer near and no longer on our side. If that weren't bad enough, more than rejection, David continues with a second you have, you have broken our defenses. This cuts deeper than mere abandonment. God didn't just leave us. He is actively against us. This is the word we saw in second Samuel a couple of times for breaking through right? It's God breaking out in judgment the same way he broke out against Uzzah, who touched the Ark of the Covenant and was immediately struck dead. God is breaking out against them. And the third word explains God's rationale. You have been angry. We've provoked God to wrath. What angers the Lord? We know when we read all throughout the Old Testament, it's sin and rebellion that provokes God to anger. Worshiping false gods, disobeying his law, when his people grumble and complain, when they are faithless, when they doubt his goodness, these are the things that anger the Lord. In other words, who turns away from whom first, generally? Man turns away from God. Man goes astray. We forsake him. And if it seems that God has abandoned you and left you to your own devices, could it be that you have turned to your own devices? Verse 2 continues the you have verbs, moving on to explain their suffering even more viscerally. And the two words give a certain image. It's the image of an earthquake. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. The land has been shaken up, broken, weakened, and on the verge of collapse. And now it totters. Now, this probably isn't literal, But figuratively, Israel's stability as a nation seems to be teetering on the edge of ruin, right on the precipice, like a bus hanging over the edge of a cliff, like in multiple movies. Verse 3 continues with two more verbs and paints another picture. And it's a picture of drunkenness. You have made your people see hard things. That is, they've experienced desperate times, severe, difficult trials. And you've given us wine to drink that made us stagger. This is the biblical image of divine judgment. Throughout the books of the prophets, God repeatedly warns all of the nations, Israel included, that those who rebel against God would be forced to drink the cup of God's wrath. Listen to Isaiah 51, which says, Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And this is what David laments. This is how he feels. He feels and he fears that God has begun to pour out his wrath upon them. And when you consider the two images of the earthquake and of drunkenness, what do they have in common? It's a feeling of instability. Tottering, staggering are words used in this psalm. Shaking and stumbling. The two times you are uncertain on your feet with no firm foundation under you is number one when you're in an earthquake and number two when you're drunk. The bottom line is Israel feels like they've been removed from their firm foundation. 
God is not with them. They are floundering. They're unable to strive and gain firm footing anywhere. God has pulled out the rug from under them. Now think for a minute if you are in a situation of personal loss or hopelessness. Maybe you're experiencing financial uncertainty. You're in a dead-end job or you're getting wrecked by inflation. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's loneliness or singleness, the pain of a broken friendship. Maybe it's the downward spiral of addiction, whether drugs or food or pornography, that has a relentless hold over your life and you feel hopeless and helpless. Or maybe you've been looking at the world around us and you feel pretty hopeless. Everything in our culture right now surrounding abortion or racism or sexual revolution, workplace reform, political drama, social media, the future of our children and for our children, all of these things you might lose some sleep over. I understand that. You might be convinced that the world, or at least America, is going to hell in a handbasket. You might feel that all is lost, that there is no hope, or at the very least you are racked with some fear and grief over what is to come. Or maybe, like Israel, it's more than just helplessness. Maybe you feel God is actually not just abandoning you, but has his hand actively against you, breaking down your defenses. Maybe it's been outright trials and suffering. Emotional turmoil, abuse, depression, rejection at work. Maybe you've been relocated, you've lost your home, your livelihood, your health even, with a surprising and alarming diagnosis. And it really might just feel like God is piling it on. For one reason or another, God seems distant and you aren't convinced that life isn't just a series of compounding troubles. Brothers and sisters, the instruction of this psalm for us is that for God's people, all is never lost. Some of you just need to hear that today. All is never lost. That in light of apparent tragedy, David still has the faith to cry out at the end of verse 1, Oh, restore us. And in verse 2, he implores God to repair the breaches. He knows that God is the only one who delivers, and God alone is capable of full restoration and complete seamless repair. He can mend the brokenness and bring healing and restore stability. You see, David knows that despite all of their tottering and all of their stumbling, God has not left them with no place to go. Though they stagger uncertainly now, he has provided a way out. Because look, brothers and sisters, at verse 4. There is one final you have verb. After seven verbs of lament, David ends with one final word of hope. Verse 4, you have. You have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. Selah. You see, the eighth and final you have verb stands in contrast with the seven negative ones that preceded it. God, you have provided the way of escape. God, you have given us a way out of all this fear and anguish, a place for us to flee off of the battlefield. You've established a place of hope, a refuge we can run to, a banner for those who fear you. Now, what is this banner? A banner is a sign that is raised up like a tour guide holds a flag so you can find him in the crowd. It's raised to stand as a beacon of hope for those in the fight that they can look to and have confidence and for those who have been wounded that they can go to the home base there and be saved and restored. It's the place of deliverance. Before COVID, Stephanie, my wife, and I love to go on cruises. I don't know if we'll ever do it again. And I do understand that type of vacation is pretty splurgy, so rest assured that we've only gone when it was either a really, really good deal or someone else was paying for us. But we did enjoy cruising. And if you've ever been on a cruise, you know that that very first afternoon, the one mandatory activity for all the thousands or tens of thousands of passengers on board before the ship even leaves the port is what? The buffet lunch. I'm just kidding. That one's not mandatory. It's optional, but the mandatory activity is the muster drill. The muster drill. Basically, based on where your room is, you're assigned to a certain area of the ship as your muster station, whether it's a theater or a restaurant or a deck or a lounge. Wherever it is, that is your designated gathering place in the event of an emergency or an evacuation. So they want to make sure you know where it is and how to report there. It's to keep track of attendance, to provide emergency instruction, to distribute life vests if it happens in an emergency, even to assign lifeboats, and so on. And so knowing and reporting to your designated muster point 
is a matter of life and death. God's banner is the same way. Under threat of death and destruction, his banner is our muster station. It stands as the place to run when all seems lost. It's the place of salvation where we can flee and live. Now, it's no coincidence that this banner is the same word for the pole in Numbers 21 that Moses raised up. You can read Numbers 21 on your own later, but basically in this part of Israel's history where they are wandering in the wilderness, they grumble out of their impatience and faithlessness. They complain against Moses. They complain against God himself. They even say of God's miraculous manna, we loathe this worthless food. And so God is angry. And he sends his judgment, fiery serpents who come and bite the people, and many of them die. And so Israel comes to Moses to admit their sin and to plead that God take the serpents away. And what does God tell Moses? He says, make a serpent out of bronze, put it on a pole, and raise it up. Raise up that banner that whoever is bitten may look upon it and live. Moses raised that banner in the desert for people to turn to and be saved. And get this, Jesus himself recounts this story to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, when he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, if you did not know this, that's the context for John 3.16. The context is Moses and the bronze serpent, that Jesus Christ is the banner raised up on a cross so that people might look to him there and live. If we humble ourselves, confess our sins, and flee to that banner, the cross of Christ, we can be saved. The fact is we were all out there fighting a fruitless war against a holy God. We were languishing in his rejection and his wrath. Our battleground was the place of God's judgment and destruction of mankind. But when we run to the cross and come under his banner, the very place we flee to is also a place of God's judgment and wrath, but not upon us, upon his son. We flee from the place where God rejects us and rally ourselves at the point where God has rejected Jesus Christ. And there we are accepted by his grace. Verse 4 ends with the musical term, Selah, which most likely is just a break in the singing, allowing for a moment of reflection as the music keeps playing. David wants us to stop and reflect on this banner, to assess ourselves and our lives, to search our hearts, and to think on this good news that all is never lost. The application of this first lesson then is to turn. Turn to him. Look, if you're out there on that battlefield where the all-powerful and holy God of the universe is your sworn enemy, it is no wonder you live in doubt and fear. You're right to live in doubt and fear. God is making you see hard things. You are tottering. You are staggering. Who of us can stand before the Lord or withstand his anger? But there's a banner. Isaiah 11.10 prophesied that Jesus Christ would one day stand as the banner for all the peoples, the hope of all the nations. Flee to him and live. This is the choice for every person, Jew and Gentile. The battlefield or the banner. The battlefield or the banner. Turn to him for all is never lost. The psalm continues to instruct us in verses 5 through 8, teaching us a second great truth, the truth that God will never change. This is our second point. God will never change. Specifically, he is a covenant-keeping God who fulfills all his promises. We'll read verses 5 through 8. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Now first, verse 5 is explicit that God's salvation is possible because of what? The power of his right hand. In the Bible, God's right hand is said to be glorious in power, to be full of saving might. It says his right hand is able to shatter the enemy. 
that it is his right hand that upholds us, that at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That is the power of God's right hand, the power to save. But it depends not only on God's power, but on God's good will. And so God himself speaks in verses 6 through 8. Look at this. It says, God speaks in his holiness. Some people think that means he spoke from his holy place out of his sanctuary. But I think the words <clears throat> he declares here are proceeding out of his holiness as in his character, who he is as God, set apart, exalted, righteous, and true. God's holiness is what makes all of his words a guarantee. None of his words will ever return void, but all will succeed in accomplishing his purposes. And so God, as he speaks, starts in verse 6 by mentioning two places, Shechem and Succoth. Now, the significance of these places is that, that, is that he wants his people to remember his covenants. We're going to do a little bit of history here as we dig through these nine locations in this text. And so bear with me. Shechem, if you remember or not, is the place of covenant renewal. All right, covenant renewal. In the book of Joshua, Israel spends the first 12 chapters of the book conquering the promised land by the power of God's right hand. They spend the last 12 chapters of the book dividing up the land as God designates for them. And this reminds us of God's power and his promises. And then in that final chapter of Joshua, chapter 24, they're on the verge of starting their new life in the new land, and Joshua gathers everyone together in Shechem. All right, that's where they all are. And that's where he says famously, choose this day whom you will serve, right? And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Does that ring a bell? That's in Shechem. It reminds us of covenant renewal at the tail end of Israel's wandering. Now, on the other hand, if Shechem's at the end, the Valley of Succoth reminds us to the start of their wandering, okay? Right after they escape Egypt, what happens? They cross over the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army chases them. God delivers them by drowning Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And the very first stop they go after that, in Exodus chapter 12, is guess where? Succoth. At Succoth, God spoke to Moses and instituted the Passover for ongoing remembrance. But get this, the histories of Shechem and Succoth go back even further than Joshua, even further than Moses. In fact, they are mentioned together, and it starts all the way back in Genesis 33. You don't have to turn there, but the story basically is that Jacob basically takes all of his wives and his sons and his flocks and his herds, and he flees from Laban. Remember that night he encounters God and wrestles with him, and God touches his hip, and um, God gives him the new name Israel. Jacob becomes Israel. And guess what the first two places were that Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, sojourned right after that night? His first stop was to establish the city of Succoth. In fact, he named it. Succoth means booths, and he went there to build booths for all of his flocks and herds, and he named it Succoth. Immediately after, he went to Shechem, where he would settle the family. So the herds in Succoth, the family in Shechem, that became the land of inheritance for him. In fact, later on, his son Joseph's bones would be removed from Egypt to be buried in Shechem. And so those two places, places of Jacob or Israel, are significant because these cities of old remind us of God's covenants of old. Does that make sense? These places correspond with God's promises that he made to the forefathers. God is saying in verse 6 when he mentions these two places to think back, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will fulfill my promises to Israel by giving you the promised land. Next in verse 7, he mentions an additional four regions, which include all the nation of Israel to say that it belongs to him. Gilead and Manasseh comprise the region to the east of the Jordan River. And if you remember, that is where two and a half tribes choose to settle even before Israel enters and invades the promised land. They decide that this land is good enough for us and our flocks and our herds. Let's settle out here. We'll be fine. We'll come in. We'll fight with you and for you. And then we'll come back and we'll, we're fine out here east of the Jordan. And even though they're outside, Gilead and Manasseh, on the east side, God is saying, you are still my own possession. The next two places, Gilead, oh sorry, Ephraim and Judah, they're counterparts, all right? Ephraim is one of the tribes, it's the most powerful and prominent tribe in the north, the northern kingdom, and so it's the representative tribe of the north. If you say Ephraim, you can mean northern Israel. And Judah, of course, was its counterpart in the south, the prominent tribe in the south, 
between Judah and Benjamin, you know, it represented the southern kingdom. This is God saying the north is mine, the south is mine. The region outside to the east is mine as well. This is all my possession, the people of my possession. And more specifically, Ephraim is called God's helmet. Right? Ephraim was the center of Israel's military strength, but it was also the spiritual center of old. And here I'm going to ask you again to recall uh, something you might have forgotten. Ephraim has a few major cities. Two of them we've seen in 1 Samuel. Right? One is Shiloh. One is Bethel. I don't expect you to remember them, but basically both cities once housed the Ark of the Covenant. Shiloh is where Samuel was when he was a boy and where the temple was then. Bethel is where he judged from when he was old. Both were considered places of worship where the people would go to inquire of God and offer sacrifices. That's Ephraim, the old place of worship where the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God was. But Judah... Judah is the scepter. Judah is the home of Jerusalem, King David's capital, the new political and civic center. It is the new spiritual center as well. The Ark of the Covenant is not in Ephraim anymore. He has moved it to Judah, where David's son will build the temple. And all this was foretold by Jacob himself, who on his deathbed had blessed his son Judah and said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. You see, from the very beginning, Judah was designated as the tribe from which God will rule forever. Because God's chosen king will come from Judah's family. King David is indeed a descendant of Judah. But more than that, and as we've been pointing forward to the king of kings in this series in 2 Samuel, the ultimate fulfillment of prophecy, the true and eternal king, Jesus Christ, would also come through David, through the line of Judah. The prophets foretold that Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, would reign and shepherd God's people forever. So God's promise of the land will come true. His promise to rule over all his people will come true. And then we get to verse 8. And in verse 8, if you didn't know better, you would think that God is just listing three more places. But it's actually a contrast, all right? It's the exact opposite. Because these three places are the enemies of God. The enemies of Israel, Moab to the east, Edom to the south, Philistia to the west. Pastor Eric covered all of these last week. Look at how he describes them. Moab is the wash basin. The wash basin is the lowliest, most dishonorable vessel in the house. It's where you wash your filthy feet. The imagery here depicts servanthood, humiliation, shame, and dishonor. And the foot imagery continues with Edom, upon whom God casts his shoe. This is the image of subjugation, okay? A master kicking his dirty shoe uh, to his lowly slave to take care of it. Alternatively, it could be interpreted, interpreted as a victor in battle, putting his foot on his slain rival. As verse 12 mentions, he will tread down our foes. Either way, it's a picture of shame and disgrace and dishonor and defeat. And then as for Philistia, the Philistines, God will shout over them victoriously, rejoicing in his triumph. God will defeat all the enemies of Israel. He will subdue all his own enemies under his feet. And in verse 8, get this, it's almost as though he's saying to Israel, know who you are. Because based on the first point, if you feel downtrodden and abandoned, and although things seem hopeless, you're not my wash basin. Moab is my wash basin. You are mine. Do you think my shoe is upon you in defeat? No, you're my helmet. Do you think I've triumphed over you? No, you are my scepter, and by you I will rule. The lesson that God is teaching us here in these verses is that he is a faithful, covenant-keeping God to his people. And if he is, that means he is to be trusted. So the first application was turn to him, but the second application is trust in him. Trust his holy rule. Trust his mighty power. And trust his perfect word. There will always be hope for God's people because God does not change. Even for us today, as his church of believers, we are included among God's people. His love for us does not change. We belong to him. And his unchangeable character and his everlasting word are the basis of our hope. Brothers and sisters, if you are in a difficult situation right now, where do you lack trust in what God has said? 
Is there a promise that God in Christ has made to you that you need to cling to more tightly? I'll give you a few examples. If you're in need, do you believe that God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory? If you're anxious about making ends meet, do you believe that you are more valuable to him than the birds he feeds or the flowers he clothes? If you're burdened by the weight of labor and performance, do you believe that if we come to Jesus, he will give us rest for our souls? If the tribulations of this world seem just too crazy to bear, do you actually take heart for he has overcome the world? If you're ashamed that habitual sin is gaining a foothold in your life, do you believe that God will always provide the way out of temptation and that no one can snatch us out of his hand? Do you ask that it might be given? Do you seek that it may be found? Do you knock that it would be opened? If not, dear brother and sister, remember Jesus Christ who promised us each and every one of these things in his word and more is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never change. We can trust in his promises. Thirdly and finally, we are never alone. We're never alone. Those who seek after God are never on their own. In fact, continuing the idea of God's promises, here's a big one I skipped. God the Father declared, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus the Son promised, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Christ prayed to give us a helper, the Spirit of truth, who would be with us forever. God is with us, and we are never alone. So let's look at verses 9 through 12. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Now in this final stanza, God's speech has ended. David resumes, and he's asking, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? David knows he needs God's help. Now, the most famous Edomite city is their stronghold of Petra, the fortified city, the most impregnable fortress. And you probably have seen pictures of it. You can Google it. Um, Some of it's still around. It's a city carved into the red rock on a cliffside, elaborate cave fortresses within the sandstone. And to get there, you have to pass through a series of deep canyons, excuse me, flanked by sheer cliff walls on either side, only a few feet wide in parts. And so invading armies would have to approach the fortified city single file through this canyon, which makes Petra practically uninvadable. Just a handful of defenders stationed at the right place in the crevice could fend off an entire army. So who can lead David's armies there? No one. David isn't asking for volunteers. This question is rhetorical. The answer he already knows is that if God doesn't go with them, they're not going in. It's over. God is the only option. And it seems like he's left them without hope. Because verse 10, have you not rejected us, O God? Going back to his lament. You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. So if I'm up here telling you today that all is not lost, and that God still loves his people forever, then isn't there some missing piece? What's missing from the picture? And we see everything turn here in verse 11. It's the cry for help. It's the humble expression of our neediness. It's our declaration of dependence on God. Verse 11, Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. It says, God, we need your grace. We need your help. We need you and you alone to fight for us. Unless we rely on our own strength, David confesses, vain is the salvation of man. Our own hands are useless to save us. If you've ever tried to kick any sin or addiction by your own sheer effort and resolve, you know by experience that this is true. Our victories are not permanent. Vain is the salvation of man. You know, the Bible says that the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength is cursed. Jeremiah 17. But it says, blessed is he who hopes, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Psalm 146. And that's the key. If God alone can do it, if he alone has the power, then we must cry out to him. 
For scripture reading, Jeff read for us Psalm 34. And part of it reads, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. You hear those words in Psalm 34? Seek him, look to him, cry out to him. And what happens? God answers and delivers from fears. God hears and saves from troubles. And so the way that we access God's deliverance is to cry out to him in prayer. Pray out of faith in his power. Pray out of our assurance in his ability. Pray out of our trust in his will. And we can be confident, as David is in verse 12, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. With God. David is certain that God will be with him. And he knows that God will be victorious. With God, we can do it. With God, we can be valiant. That is, we can be courageous. We will be strengthened when his presence is with us. Now, for us today, I know our battles are less physical and more spiritual. After all, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's, that's serious. That's scary. But the solution Paul gives that follows this verse is that we put on the whole armor of God. But even in doing so, he reminds us not to trust in ourselves. There's nothing special about us within that armor. The point is, as he opens the passage, to be strong in the Lord, to be strong in the strength of his might. So what's our role in it all? Our responsibility in the fight is in verse 18, where Ephesians 6 climax is saying, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Brothers and sisters, the spiritual battle is fought on our knees. And I preach this to myself today. If we are not praying it is no wonder we are not prevailing. I'll say it again. If we are not praying, it is no wonder we are not prevailing. Over that sin, over that struggle, over that difficulty, that relationship. And look, prayer is not just the way that we plea for God's help. Prayer is the place where we actually find peace. In prayer, we find the peace that surpasses all understanding because we are committing our anxieties to the Lord. And whatever he does with them, even though we don't know the outcome, we trust in his sovereign and powerful right hand. We find peace as we pray. In prayer, we express and we experience the hopeful assurance that God can and will see us through. And even before he does, we can be confident in him. As David is in verse 12. He is already confident that with God, we shall do valiantly. Ultimately, all these prayers will be turned to praise. Our call to action is to be steadfast in hope and faithful in prayer, and God will fight our battles. Now, I want to stop short here because I don't want to allegorize this application too much. Okay, the point of this passage, as some people might preach it, are, is not, who are the Edomites in your life right now? The point is, who God is and what he's doing. Who God is and what he is doing. And David teaches us in this instructive psalm that God is good, God is powerful, that God will do what he has promised, and that God will win. You see, I'm still not fully convinced that the church is supposed to fight political battles. And in the realm of social issues, I think the lines have been blurred so much on so many things that even taking a side might take us farther than we want to be. But this much is clear. When it comes to abortion or women's rights or racism or abuse, gender identity, workplace reform, economic uncertainty, the bottom line is that we have been given over to a world wrecked by sin. Can we at least agree on that? We live in a fallen kingdom that totters, under which the people stagger 
a broken people whom God has made to see hard things. We've seen it. We live it. We're a part of it. And I'm not just talking about America as though this country was ever God's great nation, okay? I don't think that's a thing. What we are experiencing is just the state of this whole world as long as it has been in existence. Going back to the days of the kings who led their nation to whore after foreign gods. Going back to the days of the judges when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Going back to the days of Lot when all the people indulged in immorality and unnatural desires. Going back to the days of Noah when every thought in the hearts of mankind was always evil continually. Going back to the days of even murderous, vengeful Cain and all the way back to our father Adam himself through whom sin came into the world. We have always been and continue to be in need of God's help in this fallen, sinful world. We have always needed to call upon a God who delivers. And if you read this story, God's story, you see a God who delivers. God who provided Noah and Moses and Joshua, all of the judges, King David. He always provided a deliverer and the ultimate deliverer would come through David. As you all know where this is going in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our deliverer once and for all. No other deliverer needs to come. He is here. He is reigning. He is ruling. We're part of that kingdom. Amen? Jesus Christ is our deliverer. Jesus Christ is our banner on the battlefield. Jesus Christ is the scepter of Judah. Jesus Christ is our help against the foe, the conqueror who will tread down all his enemies, crushing Satan, sin, and death. And Christian, if you've believed in Christ for your salvation, both now and forevermore, whatever happens, you know the Lord is on your side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? What a great peace that brings. But I need to say, if you're not sure, If you're not a Christian, here's the lesson of Psalm 60 for you. It's that God's displeasure of sin, his anger for your disobedience, is real and true. It means God is against you because you are against God. But here's the good news if you need to hear it today. God's grace and power are able to restore you, to repair and mend it all. If you repent of your sins and believe in his salvation, Jesus Christ, the son of God, gave his life for you, paying the penalty for your sins by dying on the cross and was raised again victorious to give you that way out. If you turn to him, look to him and live. It's the way to be made right with God and enjoy eternal life with him forever. Back up in the Cascade Mountains in the state of Washington, the young German hiker Katarina spent the night shivering, resigned to her fate of freezing to death. But the next morning she awoke to a sound in the distance, and at first she thought she was just hallucinating from all of her ailments, but it was a rescue helicopter. And she's saved, frostbitten and hypothermic, but, but alive. Now, how did they find her? How'd they know to even look? She didn't have any friends in the U.S., No one was there waiting for her, concerned she didn't come home on time. But as it turns out, someone did know. Someone was there. Nancy, the local Washingtonian, had not been able to take her mind off of Katerina for seven days after meeting her. She just couldn't shake the thought. She couldn't sleep. She regretted that she wasn't able to convince her to not finish her trek. And when the rain and snow rolled in into northern Washington, Nancy knew it was over. And so she pulled out her own hiking map, and she drew out a seven-day route from where she and Katerina had met, and she picked up the phone, and she called search and rescue, and she said, I think there's a young woman stranded somewhere near the Fire Creek Pass. Brothers and sisters, there is a God who knows you and loves you, no matter how foolish you've been. No matter how far you've run or how bleak your situation may seem right now, he loves you not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of who he is and who and what he has done. If you are a Christian, he has chosen you in Christ, and he has chosen to love you forever. 
The epilogue to Psalm, tw- Psalm 60 excuse me, is the story of 2 Samuel 8 that we already know, that God was with David in every battle, that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. God proved himself faithful and trustworthy, holy and good, gracious and merciful. And likewise for us, if we belong to Jesus, all is never lost and we are never alone because God will never change. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know who needed to hear this message today or which parts were for which people, but you know you are in full control. And you know that this message is really for all of us because it is your word. And you've proclaimed truth about yourself for us to hear and receive and to be taught and instructed. And so we pray that this day we would not go out from here not having learned anything or been changed or or, or not having been changed, but to submit ourselves to what you are doing in our lives. That in those tough situations where the future is nerve-wracking to think about and anxiety-inducing and sleep-depriving, that we would turn to the true promises of yours in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are gracious and merciful. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that has not responded to the good news of the gospel for salvation, that they would take the time to confess their sin before you, to place their trust and faith in Christ alone for salvation, and not in their own efforts or endeavors, even their own desires, but that you would do in their hearts what you desire for them. Lord, we pray that you would move and that you would work and that you would save. And for each of us, Lord, grow in us hearts of faith and steadfastness and obedience. Bring us back to the rock that our feet will be secure. Unite us, Lord, under your banner, the banner of the cross. And help us to live lives of faithful, worshipful obedience and trust. For you are good. and You are everlasting. And we thank you, we praise you, we worship you, and we love you so much. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.